Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday. I am... Feel like I've been gone for pretty much ever. I tried to keep notes of things that were happening when I paid attention. I was working on not paying attention seriously with 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 mixed, mixed results, and then I realized, you know what, I'm not going to be able to catch up with all the stuff that happens. And, and usually, you come back after nine or ten days, and it's pretty much same old, same old. The crazy people are still crazy, right? Uh, the people who are invertebrate are still invertebrate. Um, uh, Democrats are still spending money, right? It's kind of the usual thing. We're fighting over the same things. But a couple of things did happen. And in my newsletter this morning, I do talk about uh, what I did think was uh, kind of an inflection point where uh, everybody on the right decided that they were going to say the quiet part out loud. We're going to talk a little bit about Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, her deep and abiding interest in Anglo-Saxon political traditions. We'll get to that. And of course, uh, Tucker Carlson talking about the replacement theory. But before we did that, I want to talk, we're going to be talking a, a lot about Georgia politics in just a couple of moments. But if I could just take a moment and, uh, well, first of all, let me just introduce our, our special guest today, Stephen Fowler from uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting, uh, uh, who's been covering uh, politics, voting rights, elections, investigations, uh, um, 24-7, and has been kind of my go-to guy on social media to find out what the hell is actually going on in Georgia. So, first of all, happy Monday. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. There is a lot happening here always. Well, that's right. And it's going to be a long year and a half. But but if you would indulge me for a moment, um, talk about Wisconsin politics just for a second, because one of the things that happened, apparently, is that our senior senator, Ron Johnson, and I, I by the way, I make no bones about the fact that Johnson and I go way back. I get it. I, you know, this is OK. Um, so he is on. What, what we used to be my old radio show. See, uh, Stephen, uh, you're you're a public broadcasting guy. I was uh, I was in uh, conservative talk radio for about 23 years, and mm-hmm. and it was kind of you know Johnson was a regular guest on my show, uh, and uh, as as were a lot of uh, conservatives who've gone over to the dark side. Well, there's a new host there uh, named Steve Scafidi who is in my same time slot, and he had Ron Johnson on on his show last week to talk about everything. And Scafidi, uh, to his credit, is asking him tough questions one after another about about the insurrection, about elections, about uh, coronavirus, about the things that uh, Johnson has said about, uh, about Russia, just go- going through a lot of different things. And then at about the 10-minute point in the interview, without any prompting whatsoever, just kind of out of the blue, this is what the senior senator from Wisconsin said to the radio host. My response to the hit piece, hit pieces, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the biased media, they, they just don't know what they're talking about. They're uninformed. And it's unfortunate. The last one uh, before I move on is the... Uh, the... By, by the way, I, Steve, I have to say, sure. I've heard that you've kind of gone fully Charlie Sykes on me. And I can kind of hear the tone of your questions here as well. I hope you haven't. But I hope if you have gone full Charlie Sykes on me, I hope your listeners haven't particularly appreciated it. Well, so go ahead, ask me your final question. Here. Yeah, I, I don't know what the Charlie Sykes things refers to. I want to make sure that we're getting I, from the source. Yeah, I think I pretty much do know what that means. Um, and apparently, look, apparently I am continuing to live rent free in Senator Johnson's head, which is actually kind of a scary place these days. So uh, just I I wanted to start off my the podcast today, my my return by just mentioning that 
that uh, there are members of the United States Senate that are concerned about going full Charlie Sykes. This this podcast, by the way, is dedicated. And I need to warn you, Stephen, it is dedicated to on a regular basis, daily basis, going full Charlie Sykes. So before we you know, just get into all of that. Good to know. So, so Stephen, I, I, you know, when we originally booked you, I wanted to talk about, of course, all the voting laws that are going on in the, in the controversy, which uh, is, is still just hanging fire. But uh, in the intervening time. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who interestingly enough happens to be from Georgia as well, has certainly made news. And I just want to get your thoughts on, on all of this. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though she is um, a freshman congressman who with no discernible duties or influence within Congress itself, continues to, again, maybe it's become like the model of the troll congresswoman who, uh, you know, tosses things out, uh, you know, makes controversies. But last week, she kind of an interesting week when uh, Punchbowl News reported that she and uh, one of the other uh, philosopher kings of the uh, House of Representatives, Paul Gosar, uh, were forming the America First Caucus, which was based on our uniquely Anglo-Saxon values. And it was uh, the the, the document, even by the standards of of our era, was uh, particularly uh, woolly in its uh, nativist language. So talk to me a little bit about Marjorie Taylor Greene. How how did she stumble into being the advocate for America as this um, walled Anglo-Saxon kingdom? Well, I guess you have to acknowledge at first that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a legislator. She has no intent to lawmake. She has no intent to really do anything other than Uh, needle the skin of both Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, She doesn't really have any policy platforms other than this America first mantra that she has borrowed and taken from former President Trump. And uh, really, uh, you know, the worst thing that people in Congress could have done to her is what they did Mm. and kick her from committees. But it's actually the best thing for Marjorie Taylor Greene. If you look at her Q1 fundraising numbers, the four biggest days that she had were the days that she were she was kicked out of her committee assignments, the days that Democrats introduced a resolution to expel her, the day that she said that Joe Biden's ideas of vaccine passports were a mark of the beast, and the day that she introduced her own impeachment resolution against Joe Biden. And so that led to her raising more money than just about any other member of Congress, I believe, other than Nancy Pelosi. And so, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a fundraising machine and it's fundraising and outrage. And will continue to be. Say, I mean, here's the spoiler. Let's go right to the end because there was all this blowback against the Anglo-Saxon caucus because it was it was, it was not subtle at all in any way whatsoever. And Kevin McCarthy put out this tepid response, you know, with the, you know, we are not the party of nativist dog whistles. Yeah, right. Um, and even some members of the Freedom Caucus said they, they didn't want to be associated with this. But in the end, look, she's not going to be sanctioned. She's not going to be punished in any way whatsoever. And she's going to raise just bundles of cash off this, isn't she? I mean, that is the pattern. So this oh, is not one yeah. of those moments where Republicans went, whoa, okay, I'm sorry. The, you've gone too far. You've really crossed the line. We need to remind people that we're the party of Lincoln. No, this is going to be another good fundraising quarter for Marjorie Taylor Greene and not really in spite of the Anglo-Saxon stuff, but because it's playing into that pattern you just described. 
Absolutely. I mean, she put out a statement saying that, uh, you know, it was really an evolution of first her spokesman said the caucus is coming soon. Then, you know, eventually she put out a statement saying, you know, this was a staff level draft that I had no knowledge of and no reviewing of. And, you know, the fake news media is making up things that I never said, you know, claiming that because she never said the word Jewish space lasers, even though she did say that she believed that there were <laughs> uh, lasers in space controlled by the Rothschild that caused the fire, that, you know, all of this sort of thing that she put out this multi-part statement that I'm sure will result in another fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000 fundraising day. Coke, say, now, you know, on one level, so in, originally she defended this, said, you know, there's nothing racist about Anglo-Saxon. And then a couple of days later, as you point out, you know, she says, well, I didn't even read this. This was, you know, a hit job by the media. So she's backing off from it. Um, for uh, most politicians, that would be a big disappointment. I mean, that would be an embarrassment, right? Um, it, look, it looks like uh, they threw her under the bus, but that's not the way it's going to play for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, no. I mean, she is uh, very, very skilled at fueling the outrage machine, and it never really comes back to haunt her. And part of this is because the 14th Congressional District that she represents in Northwest Georgia is the epicenter of Georgia's Republican base. Uh, she didn't have a serious challenger in the 2020 election. He actually you know, dropped out before Election Day, and nobody is going to be able to come anywhere close to primarying her. And so she has relative free reign over, you know, what she says and does and how she represents Georgia. You know, we, we've had a lot of these, and I, again, this is an overused term, the dog whistle, um, but the, the the term, you know, the uniquely Anglo-Saxon tr- tradition was, uh, it seemed uniquely unsubtle, uh, essentially saying, you know, we're a country, we, we, we don't need the influences from, say, I don't know, uh, South America, the Middle East, uh, Asia, Africa, uh, any of these cultures, uh, certainly not, uh, not, not the Jews, but that, that is not going to hurt. By the way, so uh, this, is, this is related to it because, as I said, I was on vacation last week and I'm watching what, what happened. And I always try to make a distinction between what's actually new or what's sort of same old, same old, just the recycling. And this is a little bit on the line, but I did think that, you know, when you see the kinds of rhetoric that she's engaging in uh, and and you and you watch Tucker Carlson openly and enthusiastically embracing white replacement theory, it, it did feel like the Overton window of nativist rhetoric has really been moved. And, you know, what, what Tucker Carlson, I don't want to obsess about Tucker Carlson, except that this is a widely watched pundit and he is now using the language of white nationalists uh, that, again, uh, maybe it was always implicit in what Trump was saying. Maybe it's always been implicit in some of the anti-immigration rhetoric. But now it's quite explicit that he's using the term that these people are coming to replace you. And again, what I'm noticing is very little pushback. I mean, the American, uh, you know, I'm sorry, the Anti-Defamation League, was so alarmed that they called on Fox News to fire Carlson. Uh, but, you know, Stephen, you, you're watching what's going on here. Uh, Fox's bosses are standing by Carlson. And this whole idea of the white replacement theory, I mean, it is it is now being embraced by a lot of people and echoed by a lot of people on the right. Yeah, I mean, I looking here in Georgia, it comes down to who is in a role and in a place to push back on this kind of language and have it stick in an authoritative manner. And it's not just the immigration policies and language and other things, but really the only key player in Republican politics in Georgia, at least, 
that could be a kingmaker in deciding, okay, this is too far, this is not, is President Trump, who is not exactly going to say, now, now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you can't use those words. There are other ways to describe what America first means. You know, it's interesting that you put it that way, because that's the question I always ask is, okay, so who would be able to stand up and say, okay, no, we don't mean that. That is not the kind of rhetoric. And and this is, this is part of the problem of Republican politics. But I was really struck last week uh, from afar and from my you know, deep, uh, <clears throat> deep knowledge of American politics that I gleaned from looking at Twitter for about half an hour a day. The number of Republicans, though, that again start using this, and I, I for people's, con- you know, for for context, the whole "they will not replace us," "Jews will not replace us," has been a a meme on the right for I mean, for the far right for for some time. Um, and again, maybe it was implicit, but to say it out loud was really extraordinary. So it was a significant moment when Tucker Carlson basically said, "Yeah, we should be able to say it because it's true and we're brave, right?" And it triggers the libs, so you're going to hear it a lot. And then you start hearing it from uh, politicians. You know, got a guy, a Republican from Pennsylvania who says, uh, you know, uh, the native born uh, Americans are being replaced. And then, of course, since we're on the Ron Johnson theme, this is my Senator Ron Johnson who had to say this last week when he was on Fox News. And yet this administration wants complete open borders. And you have to ask yourself, why is it really they want to remake the demographics of America to ensure their that they stay in power forever? Is that what's happening here? Because the, the human depredations that's being caused by their policies, just they're just untold. Mm. It's unconscionable. But she's completely AWOL on this. So, so it's interesting, and I don't know whether you're seeing this as well. You know, I, I think a lot of Republicans thought that, well, after Trump left, that maybe we will, we'll, we'll revert to the mean, right? I mean, there'll be normal politics again. My sense right now is that it's becoming all, all of the incentive structures are driving it crazier and crazier that you're seeing people saying things that they didn't even say during the Trump years, which, again, I have I have to look at I, I, I should have seen coming, but it, it's happening faster than I would have thought. Well, if you look at Georgia, Charlie, Marjorie Taylor Greene is both an outlier and a lodestar of how things are unfolding in a post-Trump era. I mean, on the one hand, most of the Republicans that are in power in Georgia, you know, the governor, lieutenant governor, House speaker, are not this extreme in their rhetoric, extreme in their views. You know, Georgia did pass a strict abortion law last year that was struck down by the courts. But you don't have, you know, the leaders of Georgia going on nativist rants on social media. And so much of Marjorie Taylor Greene's support has come from outside of Georgia and from a lot of these more grassroots level Republicans. But on the other hand, she is launching a playbook uh, and really building off of Trump's playbook for how to effectively smother uh, social media attention, cable news attention. You know, people can't stop talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and it drives outrage and it drives fundraising and it gets painted for better or worse that Marjorie Taylor Greene is more the future of the Republican Party than, say, somebody like Mitt Romney. So does anybody in the Republican Party in Georgia uh, criticize Marjorie Taylor Greene for the Anglo-Saxon thing? Not directly that I've seen. I mean, you you have seen Republican lawmakers in the past uh the state senator from within her district has, you know, just called on uh, called on her to stop a lot of these things. But, you know, Georgia Republicans are busy with their own uh, issues (laughs) and things uh, and and, and problems and uh, a looming, brutal redistricting 
session and also a brutal 2022 statewide election that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is in many ways the least of their concerns. Okay, so you uh, there were county uh, caucuses, conventions over the weekend in Georgia. They haven't had their state convention yet. Uh, you mentioned right before we started the uh, the, the the podcast. Uh, give me your just sense of of what what the mood is among Republicans right now, because the politics and Republican politics in Georgia is fascinating. I mean, you have all of these, these factions out there that um, were obviously highlighted during the election. So what was, what was the mood um, or the themes that you're gleaning from these county level conventions over the weekend? Well, I, you know, I, I got a text from an activist who was in the Fulton County GOP meeting, which is where Atlanta is. And some of the things that he sent me to describe it, I could never end up getting away with saying on the air uh, <laughs> because uh, they were quite colorful in their language. But uh, really, a lot of kind of establishment moderate Republicans that have guided Georgia's politics for the last several years were uh, kind of drowned out and ousted by these pro-Trump insurgents. And not just in Fulton County, uh, DeKalb County, one county over that is a heavily Democratic county, passed resolutions condemning uh, Georgia's voting machine using conspiracy theory language about fractional votes and foreign servers. Uh, But what you saw was a number of counties passed these resolutions drafted by a grassroots activist who is big in the election fraud circles, uh, passing resolutions that censured Governor Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, uh, for a number of things, basically coming down to you didn't overturn the election for Trump, and we think you're rhinos, and you are not the future of the Republican Party. And that is of great concern to a lot of Republicans that uh, would like to stay in power and would like to have the party not turn into something like the Arizona GOP. And so uh, you are setting up this clash that's going to happen in 2022. And another thing, the chair of the Republican Party in Georgia, David Schaefer, who uh, was uh, party to several failed lawsuits, party to several attempts to try to overturn the election, uh, got an endorsement to run for re-election by President Trump. So he is endorsed by Trump to continue leading the Republican Party even after losing the presidential votes and two U.S. Senate seats and control of the U.S. Senate, that he is still probably going to be who is in charge of the party moving forward. You would think that there'd be more of a backlash against, you know, the failure of the party, wouldn't you? You know, particularly the, the loss of those two Senate seats, which was really stunning. I mean, I mean, from afar, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin. Um, it was it was remarkable to watch what happened on January 5th. It's been, of course, a little bit overshadowed by January 6th. But what Republicans don't blame Trump. They don't blame the crazy. They don't blame, you know, the the obsessions or any of that for uh, the obsession with the big lie for l- losing two Senate seats in control of the United States Senate. Well, to understand Georgia politics, it's it's less about Democrat versus Republican and kind of this concept of two Georgias. You have urban Georgia and kind of metro Atlanta and everything else. And so for the longest time, the everywhere else had enough votes to be able to win statewide elections and to govern policy. But what you've seen now, especially with Georgia's demographic (laughs) and population explosion, is that there are more people voting in urban counties in Georgia and urban and suburban counties than in rural Georgia. And so uh, you still have uh, maybe 
you could argue that in the next couple of years, there may be more people that lean Democrat than lean Republican. But what you have is the longtime Republican base, uh, the rural Republican base that was energized by President Trump. They're still the ones that are still diehard Republicans in Georgia. And the leadership is more uh, suburban in its sensibilities and trying to attract businesses to Georgia. Georgia is the number one state to do business. They keep repeating over and over and over again. And so there's a disconnect between uh, who gets excited by Republican policies and who's the one implementing them. And so there has been some pushback, but the voices like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who is not running for re-election so he can run a pack that he's uh, billing GOP 2.0, there's a real disconnect. And Ultimately, the there is probably overwhelming support for belief that the seats were lost because of election fraud and because it was stolen and because there was all of this, instead of looking at the mirror and saying that Georgia isn't the Georgia it was a decade ago. So I want to talk about the, the election changes. Before we get to that, though, let's sort of back into that. What has been the reaction to the boycotts of Georgia, for example, Major League Baseball? How does that play? My sense was that that Democrats in Georgia did not want Major League Baseball to pull the all-star game, but they did anyway. So give me your sense of how that, how that plays on the ground there. Well, with both the boycotts and the 98-page election law being signed, really – both parties are incredibly happy with how things have played out. Huh. Uh, you know, even they, they might not admit it publicly, but that I is mean, Democrats. I mean, Democrats have been given the, you know, they've been given a gift of this law that really was in response to claims of election fraud that makes it harder for certain people to vote. Those certain people tend to vote Democratic, and there's really this groundswell of energy behind we need to fix these people that are in charge of our state because they don't want us to vote. But then on the other hand, you know, Major League Baseball's unforced error in pulling the all-star game over a law that it's clear that they didn't necessarily read has uh, didn't necessarily read that much has given Brian Kemp the gift of having the base coalesce around him and talking about cancel culture and they didn't read the law and they don't respect election integrity and look at what other states have done. So really, this has been the best case scenario for both parties heading into a 2022 election that is going to be probably tighter than anything we've ever seen. Oh, that is so interesting. Okay, so let's talk about this 98-page bill because, and I I have to say, I'm very grateful for some of the stuff that you put out about all of this because uh, uh, there there has been, and I, and I, of course, and I'm just going to prepare myself for for this that we'll get blowback from from listeners um, who uh, think that you know anything that we say uh, about about the law is 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 not sufficiently apparently um intense i'm i'm speaking in euphemisms now okay so uh, just talk to me a little bit about this law and the way that it was portrayed my sense was you correct me okay i'm actually looking for you to correct me is that mm-hmm. many of the things that were the most controversial the most restrictive were were dropped and that some of the initial reports about this bill exaggerated its impact, which is not to say that there's not impact. So let's go through this, this bill, um, you know, you know, and, and your take about what people uh, on the outside got wrong. What did they so, get wrong about this? Well, pretty much everyone is wrong in <laughs> some capacity about this because, I mean, because it's 98 pages, you could take 10 pages and look at it and say, this is Jim Crow 2.0. This harkens back to the time where, you know, Democrats in Georgia and the Reconstruction era 
limited access to black voters, and they did so in a blatantly racist way. And this is following in that footsteps. You could also look at 10 pages and say, these are common sense reforms that are born out of the pandemic and will make things easier for local elections officials and probably make it easier for people to vote in the future. And then there are 70 other pages that change virtually every aspect of how elections are run in Georgia that nobody's going to talk about, that nobody's going to understand, and that are a lot more complicated to put together than saying this is good or this is bad. And so, you know, (laughs) looking at the law itself, it's very easy to cherry pick the good and bad of it. Uh, But as far as how things went throughout the legislative process, there were over 90 bills and resolutions filed by Democrats and Republicans to change voting. Many of them were just absolutely insane and extreme. I mean, you had Uh, state senators introducing bills to get rid of automatic voter registration, which is something that is universally good and has led to probably more than 95% of Georgia's eligible voters being on the rolls. And you had senators with a straight face saying, you know, we don't want illegal people to get registered illegally. So we need to get rid of automatic voter registration that updates your registration anytime you go to the DMV and make you have to work for it because we don't want you know, one inappropriate person to be registered, even though that's not a thing. And so there were a lot of extreme measures put in these omnibus bills that were being proposed that would get rid of no excuse absentee voting, which was passed by Republicans about 16 years ago over objections of Democrats who said that there could be fraud (laughs) with the absentee process. Uh, There were more restrictions on weekend voting. There were uh, completely getting rid of drop boxes. So yeah, the final bill in many ways is a lot less worse than what was originally proposed and put forth, but it's still on balance is not, uh, not exactly something that Georgia should be proud of and will not be something to make it, uh, easier either practically or optically moving forward. Okay, I want to come back to that point because that that was that that is interesting. So, I, my in my attempt to understand this law, I kind of break it down into three areas: um, the the motive behind it, which obviously, um, why are they doing this? Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, motivated by President Trump's lies about the election, about the claims of of fraud. So that's kind of the original sin. It does seem, as you've described it, though, that many of the specific measures. Um, make it actually easier to vote early. There are restrictions, but it does not certainly close down ballot box. What I was most disturbed, and a lot of outsiders most disturbed by, was the also the the implication that there would be more partisan control of the election process, the ability of the state to fire, to remove local elections officials, and the increased power of the partisan legislature uh, to uh, to intervene in elections. So I don't know whether whether you want to talk about you know um, you know number one, number two, or number three. But let's let's start with number three um, because uh, that's what people come back to a lot is that you stripped Brad Raffensperger of his voting position on the state elections board, which seems to be um, vindictive. And seems to open the possibility for the kinds of mischief that President Trump wanted to see happen uh, in the run up to uh, January 6th. So is, is, are, are those concerns legitimate or are they overblown? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. So Georgia has 159 counties, which is second only to Texas. 
most election decisions are made at the county level, and they are made by some combination of a hired election supervisor and a pointed elections board. Typically, you know, two Democrats, two Republicans, and a chair, uh, depending on the makeup of the county and things. And so by law, the superintendent, the one that's responsible for signing off on results, picking polling places, setting early voting hours and locations, hearing voter registration challenges, is the board, which is made up of appointees. Uh, Many of the problems with elections at the local level come from the boards, not necessarily the person who's hired to oversee the staff to run elections. And so what Georgia's law does now is it gives a more aggressive uh, timeline and process to have boards investigated and potentially suspended temporarily because of uh, malfeasance, misfeasance, and basically screwing up the election process. The way it's spelled out in the law gives uh, basically a bit of a longer timeline where there has to be an investigation and a hearing and there can be appeals and petitions. So it's not like somebody could wake up a week before the election and say, you know what, Fulton County, your board sucks. We're going to get rid of them and we're going to appoint a replacement that is going to monkey with the election results. But it does raise concerns because There have been some more overt examples of Republicans questioning Democrat-led elections boards and Democrat-led counties, and there are concerns that this new system and process could be used to uh, try to manipulate the way these counties are run. But uh, in the 2020 election cycle, many of the problems and things that could fall under supervision of this new takeover process have been smaller rural Republican counties that have messed up big time. And so, you know, it it could be a bad thing, but I don't see with the current composition of the state election board, uh, it's one Democrat, three Republicans, and now a vacant chair because the legislature gave themselves the authority to appoint a new chair and then didn't use it. So now it'll go to the governor at some point. But the current composition of the people on the election board, the three Republicans that are on it are very competent election oriented people that have uh, were responsible for bringing drop boxes to people in the pandemic and sent applications to people for the initial primary in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, we're, we're not dominated by rabid partisans from either stripe that could end up messing with the process. But the need to do this is a bit vindictive to remove Brad Raffensperger as chair of the state election board to invent a new process for trying to take over county boards when there's already one that exists in the law uh, is a bit of a solution in search of a problem. Well, let's go back to your point about um, that it, it, the law may not be as bad as some people have said. It may, it may not be Jim Crow, too, but it's not something for Georgia to be proud of. What What are your main concerns? What do you think is the biggest red flag or embarrassment in the law? Well, you know, one thing that's likely to change before 2022 is a change to Georgia's runoffs. Georgia has nine-week runoffs. Uh, Georgia is one of, I think, maybe only two states other than Louisiana, I think, that has these general election runoffs. Uh, And the runoff origin in Georgia is rooted in racism. And there was a, a segregationist lawmaker who, after Civil Rights Act and things had passed, had said, well, you know, let's do runoffs because even if a black candidate makes it into a runoff, 
the white can you know white voters will coalesce around a white candidate and we will huh. still have white people elected into these offices. So the fact that we had runoffs for these Senate elections is steeped in Georgia's kind of terrible history with discriminatory voting laws. And so now the runoff period, instead of being nine weeks after the election, is just four weeks after the election. So instead of three weeks of in-person early voting, at minimum, there will be five days. And it's not required to have a weekend early voting day because of the tight timeline. Absentee ballots for military and overseas voters will be sent out just once for the general election, and they'll have ranked choice uh, instant runoff ballots that they will send back in to get around a federal federal limit on how long military and overseas voters have before an election to have their ballots sent out. But the runoff period being shortened that short, uh, it's, it's at least a week shorter than what elections officials wanted. It's going to make it harder for people to get out and vote for the runoff. And it may push people towards election day polls. And election day polls are more crowded in bigger urban metro areas that have more black people and more Democrats. And so you may have more lines and problems or fewer people able to vote. And so the runoff system, the way it's set up, could be viewed as benefiting Republicans more. And when you've got Georgia being as purple as purple can be, you know, that's a big issue that people have. And it's also, you know, there are a lot of things that local elections officials say, these are things that we want to make our life easier. Many of them made it in the bill. There are several things in the bill that they said, these will make our life harder. And elections officials did it anyways. Drop boxes didn't exist before the 2020 election. Right. And it was something to avoid in-person contact and social distancing and for the pandemic. And it was good. You know, a lot of people use those drop boxes and voted by mail that never voted by mail before. And it helped there be virtually no lines in November on Election Day, which is just unprecedented and unheard of. Well, now those drop boxes are limited as to where they could be, how many of them can be, and, you know, when people can use them. And so you can only use a drop box during in-person early voting hours inside an in-person early voting location. So instead of dropping it outside of a library, if that library is a polling place, you can't drop it off at, you know, 7 p.m. when you're on your way home from work, you know, unless the polls are open, unless you go inside. So the drop boxes are effectively neutered in a lot of ways by this law. And that's something that there was no evidence that there was any problem with them. They were all secure. They were monitored 24-7. You know, people weren't stuffing ballots in there. People weren't stealing ballots from there. And so it's just this kind of unnecessary change based on false claims of election fraud that are only making it harder for people to vote. And it just ties into this uh, very real image that Republicans don't want certain people to vote. So talk to me about G- Gabe Sterling, who became kind of a, a, a celebrity during the election, um, the, the, the elections official who pleaded with President Trump uh, to, to stop his rhetoric, uh, warning that somebody will die. I think, you know, many of our listeners will remember Gabe Sterling. He um, played an interesting role during this legislation. He objected to many of the proposals saying they went too far. But like you, he pushed back on some of the critics. So, I mean, as of right now, what does somebody like a Gabe Sterling think about this bill? Well, rhetoric is very overblown when it comes to elections and election law and voting. And, you know, 
I've gotten heat from people saying, oh, you're trying to both sides elections. But it's true. Most people don't understand anything about how their elections work, how their voting laws work and how this does things. There are a lot of things in this bill. And and I was actually on a panel with Gabe where we talked about this. There are a lot of things in this bill that are good that will make it easier for people to vote, though not necessarily the things that some Republicans are hyping. There are a lot of things in this bill that are facially neutral that won't necessarily make it easier and won't make it harder, but are done under the guise of these false claims of fraud. And then there are things that will actively harm people and make it harder to vote, especially people in metro Atlanta counties, especially people in Democratic-leaning areas, especially people that are not white. And so you you can't really give the law a grade overall because it's sweeping in 98 pages. But uh, the problem is, is that, you know, the Overton window on elections has been just completely obliterated because it's really hard to have good faith conversations about this law uh, with anyone because there are (laughs) you could very easily go through five or 10 things that are bad about this law that kind of outweigh the five or 10 things that are good about this law. And you could very easily talk about five or 10 good things with this law and ignore the five or 10 bad things about this law. And everyone is right and nobody's wrong and everybody's positions are immovable on this. And so it's, you know, it's an impossible place to be in for somebody like me who has to cover the fallout of this and who has to actually understand what changes. But I mean, what you found is, you're not going to be able to convince very many Democrats that this law is a good thing. You're not going to be able to convince very many Republicans to consider the history uh, of suppression and discrimination Mm -hmm. and how this law is a bad thing. And you're really not going to be able to convince anyone, period, of what actually is changing and how it impacts them. No, I think your point about the both parties got exactly what they wanted is actually a really interesting take. So let's talk about uh, next next year's elections, because you're going to have Georgia will once again be in the spotlight. Uh, you have a Republican incumbent governor, Brian Kemp. You have a, an incumbent Democratic Senator, Raphael Warnock, who is, who is up for reelection again. So g- give me your sense of the lay of the land. So first of all, Kemp. Uh, uh, what is Kemp's status in the Republican Party? I mean, I look for a while like, uh, tr- you know, Trump had really cut the, you know, cut him off at the knees. But as you point out, uh, he's been able to rally some of the base back again. Well, you you, you tell me um, what, what what is, is Kemp's running for reelection? Is he? Yeah. Right, so, okay. yeah. So Brian Kemp's running for reelection. Um, he is uh, really he is threading an impossible needle right now yeah. because. President Trump doesn't like him. He's openly called for people to campaign against him and primary him. You know, he's needled him over not overturning the election for him and other things like that. And so you have a lot of base level Republicans that think Brian Kemp is not the right answer for Republicans in Georgia. But so far, the only challenger that Kemp has managed to draw is a lifelong Democrat turned Trump supporter, former lawmaker Vernon Jones, who is in the same vein of Marjorie Taylor Greene in that uh, there's not really much there there other than outrage and social media clips. But uh, Trump hasn't endorsed Vernon Jones, but he hasn't not endorsed Vernon Jones. So you could feasibly see Vernon Jones draw 25 to 30 percent in a primary. And maybe before this cancel culture, Major League Baseball, all-star stuff, 
you could say that Kemp was in a vulnerable position. He's still in a vulnerable position because you have to remember in the 2018 primary, Kemp was an upstart challenging Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, and they made it to a runoff. And it was a Trump tweet endorsement that came uh, kind of at the 11th hour that ended up seeing Brian Kemp blow the doors off of Casey Cagle like (laughs) three to one and become the nominee. And then when Trump campaigned for him, become Georgia's governor. So, you know, Kemp is kind of in an impossible place because he has to convince the base that he does have, you know, Brian Kemp, the same Brian Kemp that had these campaign ads where he had a shotgun and explosions and he was going to round up all the illegals in his truck, is having to convince conservative voters in Georgia that he is, in fact, a conservative Republican. And it's like the Twilight Zone because, you know, to hear Democrats describe it, Kemp is the most far right, radical, conservative governor to have ever existed in Georgia's history. So, that's the lay of the landscape for him, but he's also acknowledging and has to acknowledge that you know, for Georgia to be the number one state to do business is that you can't really go all in on America first, uh, very, very socially conservative issues and expect to retain the moderate suburbanites that have been kind of the core of uh, getting the coalition across the finish line. So, uh, Senator Warnock, um, obviously, I'm, I'm guessing that Republicans think they have a real good – they have a really good uh, chance to pick up that seat. It's an, uh, it's an off-year election. Um, what, uh, what, what does that race look like to you? Well, Warnock raised a yeah, – I think about $5 million in Q1. I think it's the most in a non-election year that we've seen. And so he is firing on all cylinders fundraising. I mean, he has done a lot with voting rights work. You know, he's the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is the, you know, the historic home of MLK. And so civil rights and voting rights is really a bread and butter issue for him. And so he has come out strong and, you know, as somebody who is facing reelection next year. And really, the pool of challengers against him is not what Republicans want and not what they are hoping for. Well, you know, Kelly Leffler has uh, opted to launch a voter group of her own that uh, hasn't really done much other than um, spend a lot of money. You know, <laughs> she, says she, wa- she says she wants to register 2 million voters in Georgia, and there aren't 2 million unregistered voters in Georgia. So that's the due diligence uh, is not there. And so Kelly Leffler has been floated to maybe challenge him again, but I don't believe she's going to be running. Doug Collins, who lost to Kelly Leffler in the, the you know the twenty one person special election, he finished third. You know he has had his name rumbled around as a formidable challenger, but he's not entered the race yet. You've got Representative Buddy Carter, who represents Georgia's coast, uh, mounting potentially a campaign in the next couple of weeks. But the people that have entered so far have been uh, relative unknowns. They have been. Uh, people that aren't well-known to the base, aren't well-known to people in Metro Atlanta, and aren't probably equipped to run a successful statewide campaign against uh, a sitting senator who's got overwhelming fundraising capabilities and overwhelming campaign experience. Right now, you have Kelvin King, who's a black construction executive in Metro Atlanta, who introduced President Trump at the Blacks for Trump launch that he launched in Atlanta. Uh, And you've got Latham Sadler, who uh, was a Navy SEAL and a banking executive and worked on the National Security Council and seems 
well-crafted and poised to be an ideal moderate Republican candidate. But uh, those are kind of going to have the floors mopped if Herschel Walker actually runs, which that would involve him moving from Texas to Georgia. But really the people that have been, the, the, the person that's been most exciting to Republicans at challenging Raphael Warnock is a former NFL star. And so uh, unless Doug Collins or Kelly Leffler gets in, you know, it might not be the strong challenger that maybe uh, Republicans had hoped. Well, that that would be extraordinary. Now, is Brad Raffensperger going to run for re-election? And if he does, does he have a shot to win a Republican primary given his role in the camp in the election? He is running for re-election, and um, he is already got two primary challengers. Uh, one of them is Congressman Jody Heiss mm-hmm. of Georgia, who has gone all in on this false claim of election fraud, conspiracy theory. Uh, you know, he infamously tweeted and then deleted, this is our 1776 oh, moment great. on the day of January 6th. Uh, you know, so he is kind of one of the lead conspirators in pushing these false claims about election fraud. And so Brad Raffensperger says, if I am not the Republican nominee, November 2022, it's going to be bad for democracy. You know, it's not even saying, you know, I'm the best one and I'm going to do the best secretary of state. But he's told me that if he's not the nominee, it's going to be bad for democracy. But the interesting thing about Brad Raffensperger is, uh, it, it may not show in how he does the job of chief election official and other things that the Secretary of State does, but Brad Raffensperger is probably one of the most farther right conservative politicians in Georgia. Huh. And so for him to be called a rhino and for him to be accused of being in the pocket of Democrats is just, it's an amusing thing because personally and politically, he is very, very, very conservative, probably the most conservative statewide officer that Georgia has. But because of Trump's vice grip on the party and the narrative, he could be in jeopardy. And the, I mean, the interesting thing I'm watching out for is a lot of the things that Brad Raffensperger has said so far and will say to survive a Republican Party uh, are also things that probably best position him to be one of the safest Republican incumbents in the general if he makes it. Because his, you know, while Jody Heiss is saying all of these things about election fraud and Stacey Abrams and other things like that, Brad Raffensperger said, there are Republicans that are lying to you. I have done my job fairly. It's not my fault that Republicans lost. It's President Trump's fault. And oh, look at Sidney Powell in this Kraken lawsuit. She admitted that she lied to you. I never lied to you. And so the things that he's saying to boost his credentials to win a primary challenge would actually end up helping him in a general. Now, this is why Georgia politics is so is so interesting. It, you know, the the, the Twilight Zone uh, uh, quality of, of somebody that conservative being uh, treated like a pariah because they're not Trumpist. I mean, this is the story of the Republican Party, that it's not really about any ideas or about your record or how you voted. It's it's are you in favor or out of favor with uh, with with the former guy? Stacey Abrams, is she going to run again statewide? I mean, it, it, it seems all but a given. I mean, she's been notoriously tight-lipped, even though she's talked about her plans. I mean, Stacey Abrams wants to be the governor of Georgia. That is why she ran the first time. That's why she spent the past you know three years building this voting rights organization and talking about uh, really policies that are enacted at a state level. You know, she was floated for VP, and she was supposedly on the shortlist for VP, which I'm sure, you know, it would be hard to turn down if somebody says, hey, would you like to be the number two person in the United States? But I mean, Stacey Abrams policy 
you know, speaking of policies versus ideas, you know, Stacey Abrams has spent her political career focused on policy issues hmm. that you can enact as a chief executive of the state. And, you know, she's not necessarily somebody like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's all about uh, sound bites and outrage and things. But there are policies she wants to enact as the governor of Georgia. And uh, so I would expect her to announce at some point as the rest of the slate of the Democratic uh, primary or Democrats that are running for these higher offices are announced. But, you know, she is pitching and she has pitched herself and her campaign and her existence as kind of the battle for the policy future of Georgia. It's not just, a, you know, like the country is going to go to hell if Democrats win or Republicans win. But I mean, I, I think what made Kemp and Abrams so powerful in 2018 and will probably make it even more powerful in 2022 is you have people arguing policies and their policy directions and how they're going to affect things instead of uh, a lot of the political rhetoric that goes around, you know, an us versus them mentality. Stephen Fowler, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, and for, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with, uh, with, with Stephen's work, uh, your pinned tweet right now is a 2300 word explainer on almost everything this 98 page election bill does from uh, the controversial absentee changes to stuff you've never heard of you can find that at uh at uh, georgia public broadcasting.org um how do you feel? I'm, I'm i'm looking i'm looking at a, at, a, at trying to come up with a simple way of describing your um your twitter handle it's my um, name without vowels. Okay, that's a way of doing it. Yes, Stephen Fowler, you know, at Stephen Fowler without vowels. Stephen, thank you so much for all your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.